All right. We are in uh, this series, It Matters, where we have been trying to articulate, the hope is this week and forward, that we would articulate that there is direction and design for human relationships, trying to recapture, recover, and even be reinvigorated by God's direction and God's design for relationships, whatever sphere of relationships you find yourself in, whether that's friendship, whether that's a dating, whether that's marriage, whether that's parenting, there's direction and design for it. And at the end of God's direction and design is life. That when we navigate relationships God's way, we always run into life. That is what he places in front of us. That is what we are after life-giving relationships. At the center of these life-giving relationships is deep, simple, enriching friendship. That's why Pastor Carlos started us off last week with just that idea that, that God has actually given us the space and even given us tools to pursue friendship well. Now, what I want to do, I, wanna, I aim to build on that pursuit by really laying a foundation of emotional health and spirituality that should take place personally and then show up in our relationships as well as we try to pursue greater health and wholeness relationally. And let me just be honest, uh, I've been in this space really for a year plus, but in prepping for uh, this a series, this space, we're just reading more along the lines of emotional health and spirituality. And so if at any time my eyes start to sweat, it is okay. I don't rush to say, Yo, what is happening? It's you know, just the nature of what happens yeah, when God is doing some therapeutic work in your soul. All right. And so the goal for us today is to lay that foundation that they are absolutely critical to our relationships as well as give us a paradigm and some practices that we could take hold of that would push us further in their pursuits. So that's why there's only one verse today, Ephesians 4.15. We'll have some supplementary verses, but really Ephesians 4.15 where we get this overarching paradigm and some subsequent ongoing practices that push us further in relational health and vitality. We want it. You know that, right? We want that. We want relational health and vitality. We want relationships that make sense and actually matter. We want relationships where there's emotional maturity. Emotional maturity is when you have the ability to interact with your emotions in a healthy way. That means you could understand where your emotions are coming from. You could understand what your emotions are doing to you. And then you can apply said emotions in a way that is actually healthy. So you don't pop off just because you're angry. You don't cut people off just because you're hurt. Emotional maturity, we want that in our relationships, yes? Yes. We want relationships where there's freedom and security to share transparently. We want relationships where we don't have to fear that information will be weaponized against us. The weaponizing of information, the words for that is slander and gossip. And by the way, it's still sin. 
it's sin to weaponize information to hurt another person is sin. It's slander. It's the thing that hung Jesus on the cross. Think about that. Jesus died for us to remove the sin that stood in the way of intimacy. Sin nailed Christ to a cross. Now, love kept them there, but make no mistake, it was sin. So, quite practically, Jesus hung, bled, and died because some of us have loose lips. Think about that. I weaponized information, and now Christ has to go to Calvary. And we want relationships where that's not the case, right? Relationships where we feel like I could share freely and not worry if you're going to weaponize this tomorrow or some other time in the future. We want that. We want relationships that have a level of security that it doesn't feel like they're always on edge, you know, always at risk of ending because they're one bad decision away from people being like, ah, I'm good, I'm out. We want relationships that make us feel good and propel us in pursuits that are good. A friend of mine, we had dinner, <laughs> uh, actually it was a long time ago, but we were talking about, uh, <laughs> we were talking about a lot of stuff, but one of the things that we were sharing was just this idea of starting a, a reality TV show, uh, Real Husbands of Target. And part of the idea was, we, we came to a conclusion, and, and he, he mentioned it this way, uh, he's clever, way more clever than I am, and he, he was just like, man, you know what, Moochie, I don't like who I am in Walmart. And I'm like, me too, me too. Now that's no shade against Walmart. If you shop, get busy, get after it. But there's something that happens when I see the blue and the yellow. It produces something in me that does not happen when I'm in the space of red and white. Are you tracking with me? And we know, come on somebody. And we know, we know that environments do stuff to us and relationships do stuff to us as well. There are certain relationships where like, man, I don't like who I am around you. Like who I am around you does something to me that's not actually healthy. You're toxic. Furthermore, there's some relationships where we actually like who we are around them, but we shouldn't. It's not a good thing. But emotionally healthy relationships, relationships that are rooted in love, produce good in our lives. We want it. But do you know something? It's not just that we want it. God wants it for us. God in his mercy and in his grace and in his kindness has created a world full of relationships that we can experience. But you know what I know? That you know as well? Some of us have settled for less than God's best. In all of our relationships, friendship and other. And we've settled because the idea, the alternative of pursuing God's best involves opening up ourselves again to disappointment and we don't want to do that. A friend of mine said this. She, she actually put it in a song. If I get close to you, open myself to you, I might get burned, ashes to life. Yeah, <laughs> we know that. We know in our hearts that the reality of love 
involves the possibility of pain. To love well and truly is to open yourself up to being hurt. It is like giving somebody a loaded gun and saying, don't shoot me, please. That's the nature of love. But emotionally healthy, vibrant relationships are rooted in love and will always involve the possibility of pain. There's a prayer that I've been praying for myself. I want to commend to us now, and I'm going to close with it later. And here's a prayer. God, help me to create new history that allows me to experience the future possibilities. God, help me to create new history that will in turn allow me to experience the future possibilities of relational health, wholeness, and life. Now, part of how that prayer comes to be is taking hold of God's paradigm for relationships. Ephesians 4, like I said, it's one verse. We're going to sit in it. We're going to swim in it. We'll bring out some supplementary ideas and texts. But Ephesians 4.15 gives us this overarching paradigm and some ongoing practices that if we take hold of, life is on the other side. And so that is going to be the flow of our text. That's going to be the flow of our time to look at this overarching paradigm. What is it? What does it involve? What does it entail? And then to move to some ongoing practices that are created in light of it. And then I'll close with some considerations, some applications for adult friendships. Because adult friendships are a beast. Them jumps are hard, yes? It was like, oh man, I, I just missed those days. We were in the cafeteria and we were playing grinding beat, you know, by clips. And now it's like we got jobs and stuff. Now we're in college. Amen. Getting ahead of myself. Uh, Ephesians uh, 4.15, overarching paradigm, ongoing practices, considerations for adult relationships. Let's read it and get to work. Iman read it earlier, but it's worth reading again. Verse 15, rather, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. I like it. Absolutely layered. It's robust. There's so much here. I love Paul in Ephesians because he is verbose with his language. It's super descriptive, super encouraging, and inviting, painting clear pictures of what he is after. Paul's agenda in the book of Ephesians is to bring out the cosmic yet real-time realities of the gospel. The cosmic yet real-time realities of the good news regarding the person and work of Jesus. Those realities have real implications in relationships. So when you get to the back half of the book, right after chapter 3, verse chapter four and on, what you just start to see is all of these clear calls to actions in light of the gospel for relational spaces. And so he talks about what does it look like to have the love of God, his unconditional, powerful, decisive act for our good. What does it look like to have that love shape the way that we interact one to another? So he gets to the end, he talks about, listen, end of chapter four, he's like, hey, you should not, don't steal. <laughs> you 
Stealing isn't loving. Stealing is to put my needs above yours. It's to put my needs above your good. Don't do that. But I love Paul because he doesn't just say, hey, don't do that, but he also gives us what we should do. So instead he said, Yo, don't steal. Let the thief steal no longer. Instead, let him or her work with her hands for service so that they have something good to show for. He is going to blitz them with all of these ethical applications of the good news of Christ in relationship. But even though he's blitzing them with all of this, he is after this aim of maturity. So this is earlier in the chapter where he, he talks about how God has gifted his body, that there's a variety of giftedness that exists in the context of community. And what we see whenever the giftedness of the body of Christ is brought out, it's actually not even focused on the gifts. It's focused on the goal of the gifts and the generosity of the gift giver. So he starts to describe all of these gifts that have been given to the people of God. And he says, it's for the purpose of maturity of growth, of not being tossed to and fro by every idea that's not true. It is for the purpose of maturity, which he is going to define as growth and wholeness in love. So everything he's after, all of the ethical commands he's given are all rooted in this aim of growing whole being mature in love. Now, verse 15 is a vehicle to that end. It is both a vehicle for maturity and it is an expression of maturity. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, in every way, into Christ who is the head. There's a lot here. We should feel the weight. Now, if you've existed in any type of Christian uh, space or community or organization, uh, you may have heard this verse, right? This is like top five like Christian verses that we heard of, familiar with, and even throw out, right? So this, then there's also, I can do all things through Christ who uh, strengthens me, judge not lest you be judged, like get that speck out of your, like we, like, you know like we got like the, the arsenal of like Christian cliches and sayings, this is like top five. And so often, if you've heard this verse, here's what this often looks like. Speaking the truth in love looks like license to say hard things, but if you add parenthetically in love to it, it's all good. So it's like, yo, you know, I, your outfit, but I'm saying this to you in love. Like, what? That ain't, I feel like that. I don't feel like that's the way that's supposed to work. You know? But don't we do that? Have you ever heard? Maybe you've done it. You're like, man, that's actually me. Stop it. All right, that's, you, that's not what this means. Right? But it's, it's license to confront or criticize or communicate difficult things. But as long as you package this ambiguous phrase of love, it's good. That's often how this is used. The opposite is true, too. So if it's not used as license to energize us to say difficult things in the context of love, it creates this idea of hesitancy where we're more passive and we don't speak at all because we don't want to come off as not loving. So we'll see people in situations, circumstances, doing things that are destructive, destroying their souls, but we will say nothing. 
Because like, ah, that's probably, I don't, I don't want to come off as not loving. I don't want to come off as pharisaical. I don't want to come off as judgmental. So I will see you give your life to something that is killing you. I'm watching you be crushed under the weight of pornography and the dehumanizing of another person, but I'm just going to keep silent. I'm watching you be emotionally abusive to your spouse where they're afraid to even verbalize what's going on in their heart because you are wicked with your words. But you know what? We all struggle, so I'm not going to say anything. That's how this verse is used as well. Neither of those captured the weight of what Paul is after. Paul is after a paradigm that should guide, ground, and even grow us into greater love and maturity. Now, most of us know, some of us, if you don't, it's okay, the scriptures were written in three languages primarily. So they weren't primarily written in English, Spanish, or Creole. All right, the scriptures were written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, okay? And while you don't need to know the original languages to understand the love of God, like I don't need to know Greek to know that there's a God who died for my sin and wants me to have a relationship with him forever. Like I don't need to know Hebrew to know that God has a plan for my life that he invites me to participate in. I don't need to know Aramaic to know I probably don't need to be a jerk. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like I, don't, I don't need that. However, there are times where it is super helpful to grab hold of the original languages because we may be able to understand more what the author is trying to convey because some things may be lost in translation. Example, my whole name is Onemuche Chuku Azuna Yukebu. Yes, that, that's your, your head jumped up. All right, kindergarten was tough. Yeah, I mean, like having to write that. Onye, that's me. If you have one of those names, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so my first name, my grandfather named me that, Onemuche Chuku, and he named me Onemuche Chuku because I was born dead. Okay, my mom wasn't breathing. God stepped in supernaturally because he kind. He didn't have to, but he chose to. God stepped in and gave me life. So my grandfather named me Onemuche Chuku, which is rooted in Igbo culture and the Igbo language, and it's translated as no one knows the mind of God. Now that, that comes out of Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. That, all of that is captured in Onemuche Chuku. <laughs> so y'all like, that's a lot of words, so I, I, but Onemuche Chuku sounds like a lot, so I could see that. That entire idea captured in one word. Now, when we hear that phrase, speaking the truth, really, that is capturing one word, one idea that actually doesn't primarily involve speaking at all. It is a verb that is translated to truth. Now, that's kind of weird in the English language, so we don't translate it that way. But that's the essence of what Paul is writing, to truth. Now, all of the surrounding dynamics of to truth show that it is both active and ongoing, so it could be translated as truthing. Truthing. Now, what Paul is getting at, this, this idea of truthing exists to communicate or convey 
not merely what you speak, but how you live. That the entirety of your life should orient around that which is actually true. Truthy. That you should live and move in sync with that which is true, both with what you say and how you live. And then he goes and he brings out more context, more like dressing. And he says, in love, agape. This unconditional, robust affection and decisive move towards that which is good. The entirety of your life and how you relate to others should be guided by that which is true and that which is ultimately loving. That's what he's getting at. Now that's more expansive than just say nice things, yes? But you should move in a way that accords with truth and love. It begs the question, well, how do we know what's true? This is why the scriptures have weight. Whenever truth is unfolded, it's not primarily focuses on propositions alone. Truth throughout the scriptures is personal, it's qualitative. This is why Jesus says, I am true. And so the standard for determining that which is really true is God himself and what he says about himself, about us, about the world around us, about others. And so to move in a way that is truthing in love is to have God's standard shape all of our lives. Are you tracking with me? He says, this is what I'm asking you to do. Now, the weight of that, isn't that, isn't that first of all, that's weight. That hit me. I'm just like, oh man, Lord. Am I living in a way that accords with what you say in all things? Constantly thinking about that. Now, the weight of that isn't just what he calls us towards, but by default, what he's pulling us away from. To say, I need you to move in a way that accords with that which is true, is also to say, I need you to move away from that which is actually false. Like, I need you, I need you to move from a lifestyle of falsehood and pursue a lifestyle that accords with truth. Now, humanly speaking, <laughs> what we tend to do is we tend to apply stuff like that primarily in vertical ways. So the application, one might say, man, you know what, that's good. I like that, I'm taking notes. Oh, but you, so I need to be more truthful in my relationship with others, yes. Yes, in fact, Ephesians 4.25, he's going to reiterate this idea Therefore, put away all falsehood. So yes, that's coming. But that's actually not the starting point. I can't with any degree of integrity assume that I could be truthful and loving in the way I relate to others without first examining if I'm truthful and loving in the way that I relate to God. So this overarching paradigm, it covers all relationships, vertical ones included. Thus, the practice is practicing integrity in the middle of all our relationships. First up, practicing integrity in how we relate to God. 
practicing integrity with how we relate to God involves bringing our open and true selves. It's coming with him openly and honestly regarding what's going on in our heart and what's going on in our lives. It is bringing the unedited version of who we are to the God who is. You know there's an edited version of you, an edited version of me. So if everybody, I feel like everybody's on social, you know. Um, but there's this draft folder in my social. <laughs> so like, like yeah, the, the draft folder is where the spirit of God has grabbed a hold of my conscience. And so I'm getting ready to just pop off. On, you said, what? Keyboard courage. And then God is like, what do you, stop. You want to ruin your, yeah. And so like my draft folder is loaded. And so I feel like I'm a very authentic person, but even so, there's an editing that takes place. We filter ourselves through various things. You know that, right? Right? But when we're talking about practicing integrity before God, it's not doing that. It's bringing your unedited version to God. And that is terrifying. Because part of the reason why we edit is because we feel like if we don't, we'll lose the relationship. We do that with God. God, I will not talk about how bad something is as if you don't already know it. Do you know that God died for the unedited version of you? Not some future, clean, you got it together, you finally got over that struggle. Like that's not, that's not the way that we read the story of God that while we were in the middle of our brokenness and our foolishness and our sin, doing the things that we know we shouldn't, but we can't help, God said, I still want you, I still love you, and I want that version to come to me. That's freeing. This is Psalm 139, where David, who was a lame, rapist, murderer, Man after God's own heart. He pens this. He says, search me, O God. Search me. God, I am inviting you to investigate me. I am bringing the fullness of who I am, my whole self, to you. Now search me and show me what you find. And at the end of the chapter, he says, show me if there's any grievous way so I could turn from it. That's practicing integrity before God. God, this is who I really am. This is where I really am. This is my hopes. These are my fears. These are my dreams. This is what's going on. I'm terrified. I'm frustrated. Things are actually really good, but I'm afraid that the bad is coming quickly. God, here I am. Search me. Practicing integrity before God is not just asking God to investigate the unedited version of yourself, though. It's actually repenting from what you see. Now, this is the grace of God. He gives us this reality, the assurance of pardon. The assurance of pardon fuels courage for confession. We ask for forgiveness when we actually believe we will be forgiven. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if I don't actually believe that you're gonna forgive me, then I'm like, I just, is this not even, why am I gonna waste my, like, why would I give you the opportunity to fail me? I'm good, I'm off that. But you get Psalm 32, David again. 
And he says, blessed is the man who's forgiven, whose sins aren't counted against them. The reality of who they are, God sees and says, but I still want you and forgiveness is possible. That man is blessed and he keeps going on. He says, when I hid my sin, I wasted away from the inside because pretending and lying and living in falsehood is exhausting. But when I brought it to you, you forgave me. And you cleanse me because you actually want relationship with me. That's practicing integrity before God. And it is a prerequisite for practicing integrity with other people, which is the second practice, ongoing practice that is. Now, some of us are like, I'm connecting dots. I've been at the brook long enough or I've been in Christianity long enough to know that my vertical love for God should be expressed in my horizontal love for others. So if I'm supposed to be open and honest, unedited vertically, that seems to mean that I'm supposed to be open and honest, unedited horizontally. Some of y'all are like, nope, <laughs> that ain't happening. Why would I do that? Like why, would, like, why would I risk the opportunity of you proving me right? I'm good. However, there's such a thing, let me just go ahead and say this, there's such a thing as healthy boundaries. Not everybody is ready or worthy of having the real you in a particular moment. And that's okay. However, while that is wise and it is operating out of wisdom and caution, that is different. That is completely different than acting deceptively because I just don't want you to fail me. Not the same thing. That is different than moving in a way that we know is not actually true because it's more comfortable withholding because of wise boundaries is not the same as withholding because I'm actually afraid. And practicing integrity in my relationship with others is Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, put away all falsehood. Having put away all falsehood, let us speak the truth to one another, to our neighbor, because we're members of each other. Practicing integrity in our relationships is to have a courageous willingness to not withhold ourselves. That is practicing integrity. It is to have a courageous willingness to not withhold ourselves. Scared yet? Scared yet? Should be. Because we have history that shows what's possible, pain. Which is why we must reiterate that relationships that we're after are rooted in love and love opens itself up to be hurt. But what I must grab is that my ability to relate well to others 
is inseparable from my belief in the goodness and power of God. If I believe God is good and he is moving in a way that is not for my harm, but for my well-being in life, then I can trust people differently. But if I do not believe God is in control, I must by definition assert control for myself and what that looks like relationally is refusing to give you the unedited me until you've earned it. And that sounds wise until we realize that we'll never earn it. We can play that game, but what we'll do is we'll keep moving the goal. Because we have proven history and we're just like our forefathers, Adam and Eve, Genesis 2, who were originally naked, unashamed, vulnerable before each other, but sin enters in and they immediately grab fig leaves, immediately. Because now they see each other and they see that there's something in the other person that should cause them to be afraid so they cover up. That is our story. That is our pattern. And the only thing that frees us from that is the gospel. That there's a good God who wants relationship with us and wants us to have relationships with each other. And he moves in love and hope for that aim. Let me close with the considerations for adult friendships. What are, I mean, they're, they're animal because they're harder to sustain, man. Like you don't have as many interactions and intersections because we're not in the lunchroom anymore. And even in college, we're not in the dorm and we don't have the meal plan. It was cool when we were like, yo, like, man, you, you want these cup of noodles too? Awesome. But then when you're like in your upper thirties, it's like, yo, like noodles for dinner is not, that's weird. Like, you know, like we don't want to do that anymore. It's cool. Like, I mean, some people, if you, do, if you like news for doing it, I'm not coming for you. I'm just saying. Like, it's not as cool. It's not as a great story as when you're like 19. You're like, <laughs> And so there's just not as many opportunities to cultivate and strengthen adult relationships. And they're harder because you know what we do? We make value judgments easy and quickly about all things, but specifically relationships. So I thought you were X, Y, and Z. I realized that you weren't. Now I'm looking for the relational off-ramp. Why this truth in love ethic, this truthing in love ethic to adult relationships, what it does is it forces us to move and act more humbly. And it forces us to move and act more sincerely, fighting for clarity, to choose trust over suspicion. To choose to make room for relationships to grow. That where relationships begin isn't always where they're gonna end up and I can make room for those relationships to grow and I could choose to trust, even if it's scary. A friend of mine, she says it this way, Anna Perez, I think she's an amazing communicator, teacher, leader, and she says, we have the tendency, the profound ability to judge ourselves based on our intentions 
while judging others based on their actions. So we'll give ourselves grace, but we won't extend it to other people. We don't afford people the benefit of the doubt. We don't afford people the reality of their humanity. We expect certain things that don't accord with truth and or love. The fragility of adult relationships is only strengthened when we can move more tenderly with truth and more humbly with love. Dust a prayer again. God, I'm gonna need you to help me create some new history. Because the old history is actually still present. I feel it. I wanna turn the volume down, but I can't. It's behind every interaction. Are you doing this because you love me or are you doing this because you have to? It's causing all sorts of second guessing that I wish it didn't, but it does. Because I have this experience that has created walls. Praise God for the gospel that stares us in the face and says we are all human, all broken, all full of sin and in need of a savior. Yet in the church, we are the people who have said, yeah, that's me, but that's not my future because I know God. And he's renewing me and he's transforming me and he's giving me a different life. Thus, we are the very environment where new history is meant to be cultivated. Let's pray that actually. God, would you give us the courage? <laughs> would you be so kind to help us to create new history for the possibility of future memories? That is, that is the ask, God, that you in your kindness and your grace and your mercy would help us to create new history for the possibility of future memories. And would truth and love be the vehicle that gets us there? That we move in light of who you are and what you say and what you're after and we move more tenderly, more humbly, and even with more patience at a pace that isn't dictated by preference but is rooted in sincere desire for relationship, help us in the journey ahead as we continue in this series, as we work through this text together. Please, in your name we pray, Jesus, amen.